0: Gracious Heavenly Father, we make that our prayer this morning, that you do indeed, take our heart, our mind, everything we are, conform it, transform it, what you want it to be. Not what we want it to be, but what you want it to be, of what we can be in you, and because of you, and through you. May the sermon that uh, is about to happen be a part of that, as it is over one of the greatest sermons, if not the greatest sermon ever given by your Son on earth. We lift it up to you. We praise glorifying to you. And we pray that it's an avenue by which you can work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. amen. All right. Well, with the sound working, let me once again welcome everybody and welcome everyone who is joining us from wherever you're joining us from just a quick recap because I got word that the announcements over the online didn't start until halfway through. I just invite you to wherever you're joining us from, say a quick hello and say uh, that you're here, that you're online with us. Um, And what was the second one? Oh yeah, congratulations to Revive once again for a great conference. If you missed out on that, the women's conference yesterday, uh, contact us. I believe that it's still going to be available for several months. And the other one was, if you are in need of the COVID vaccine or local, transform us, uh, transform us, contact us, and we can put you in touch with Chris Jensen, who uh, will be uh, the contact for that. And so if you're local and over the live stream, let us know if you need help with that. <sighs> Technology is a wonderful thing, except when it's not, but we persevere. What's also an interesting, wonderful thing is the chance to be able to speak from God's Word. And here's the thing, though. Certain ones, I know that certain people are not going to be happy with me afterwards. You will, most of you, maybe some of you, maybe not all of you, will not be happy with me. Not because I'm going to say anything bad. Because you're going to feel that I went way too fast over way too much and didn't go deep enough. And you are absolutely correct. I'm letting you know I'm aware of it right now. The point of our venture this year is not to delve into every single text and exegete it and draw out every bit of its meaning, but to get the big picture of Matthew, to go through Matthew in a year, to be able to see the big stories, how things connect over the large picture. And so that that does mean we'll be looking at larger chunks and not necessarily drawing out every single thing. But we will be drawing out and applying to our goal for the year, which is to answer the question, if King Jesus is indeed King Jesus, What does that mean? Both as far as what does that mean that he is King Jesus, and what does it mean for us as kingdom citizens? Allow me just in a way of introduction and also as a way to recap where we were last week. We did indeed talk last week at the beginning of the Sermon on Mount about King Jesus, and we made the proposition from the Beatitudes that the character of the king determines the character of the kingdom and therefore its citizens. Put another way, who the king is affects who the citizens of the kingdom are or at least should be. And we looked at the Beatitudes specifically and we made the point that they're not just ethical virtues or characteristics that we must aspire to or have more of or have less of, but they are indeed a picture, a portrait of several things. One, a portrait indeed of the Messiah himself. The Messiah, King Jesus, was low in spirit, a peacemaker that came down to earth to insert himself to make peace between us and God and between us and each other. Poor in spirit, that he humbled himself, emptied himself, taking the form of a man, indeed dying a death, indeed a death on a cross, Philippians 2. He was meek. He was persecuted. He was merciful. The Messiah himself is the greatest portrait of the Beatitudes. But also, as we said, the attitudes are a portrait of a kingdom citizen. We must aspire to this image, not just because it is the character of our king, but because the third point you made, it's a portrait of who indeed makes the entire gospel possible. Only someone who is willing to be spirit, only someone who's willing to be merciful. Only someone who is willing to be meek, only someone who is willing to make peace, only someone who is willing, indeed to mourn, only someone willing to be persecuted can make the gospel, and therefore the Sermon on the Mount even possible. With that, we looked at the fact that he ended that first section by challenging his listeners. Jesus challenges listeners saying that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is where we go, whoa! The Pharisees obeyed every law. Tried. How can one be more righteous? Well, it has to do with two things. One, righteousness does not mean perfect in obedience. Righteousness the word I couldn't remember last week (laughs) comes from the Hebrew term which means right relationship and therefore what he's saying is that unless you're right meaning your relationship with God is right is more right and in fact this word here is not just surpasses but even there's a word that's not translated in most translations which means even more greatly surpasses or more surpasses but that's very bad English that's why we don't translate that what does that mean? So it means the fact that Jesus comes to bring us a more gospel. Not the fact that we must continue to try even more harder or do even more things or be even more, more, more ourselves. But that Jesus, Jesus himself, wants a more gospel for us, meaning more and more righteous, meaning more and more in right relationship with God. Jesus himself expects that of us, hence the Beatitudes, and Jesus himself creates that more gospel of right relationship with God. And It is this which we'll be delving into in this sermon. I say that because it goes together, big pictures once again. In the text that Ed read earlier we'll be going over today, believe it or not. We'll be actually going over all these things, hence why I started with we're not going to delve into every single detail. There are six things that Jesus does and he begins with six antithetical statements. Antithetical means by way of contrast or putting out something and then saying... In essence, on this hand, but on the other hand. It's a creating a contrast, creating something which this may not be true or may be true. On the other hand, this may be true or not true. He's creating a paradox, creating a contrast for his listeners. And there's a system which he uses all through here, which is this. Jesus will quote from the Bible. He'll interpret, extend, or counter that quotation. But his opposition is not from the Bible itself. It's how that scripture has been interpreted. He'll probe behind it into the very mind of God and reveal what the original intent are and therefore how his followers are We're very familiar with this text, we can see this, but perhaps, hopefully, well, maybe not hopefully, hopefully you have seen how all of this relates, not just single verse by verse, pericope by pericope, but how this all relates from the Beatitudes all the way through the rest of the sermon. There's a reason this is first in the Sermon on the Mount. So, with that, let's delve into the first antithetical statement, which is about anger. Jesus says, "You have heard it that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, 'You fool!' will be liable to the hell of fire." So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you shall be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. It's appropriate to start with this one because it's next, but also because this is one of the more obvious ones that Jesus uses his little antithetical process. And so it's very easy to point out. And also we get this one very easily when it comes to anger. He starts out with the redefinition of murder. Obviously, the Old Testament, he quotes from Deuteronomy here, obviously, the Old Testament was against the act of murder. It was against killing people. It made some adjustments for intentional murder versus accidental murder, accidental killing, but it was against the taking of another human life. Jesus takes that assumption, takes that law, takes that scripture, and redefines it by saying, You have heard, do not murder, but I say to you that even everyone who is angry with his brother, will be liable to the same judgment as if he murdered. This is Jesus building on something that was not just strict obedience of the law, but the principle behind the law. And indeed it's a good one, because that is basic principles. If you never come angry with someone, you will never get to the point of wanting to harm them or murder them. But it's not just about redefining what it is. Jesus also is active. Not just do this instead of this, but Jesus always has something in this section to inform his citizens, to teach his citizens, to encourage and, and maybe uh, more, you know, more directly encourage. What's the point here? The point is not just what you do, but the point is reconciliation. So he uses two terms here, two instances that's a little bit hyperbole, but yet not. He says, so if you're offering your gift and then remember that your brother has something against you. Notice he doesn't say if you have something against your brother, but if anyone has anything against you. What is he saying here? He's saying that unless you are reconciled as much as you can be to your brother, your worship can be unreconciled with God. There is something that is not right in a relationship, therefore that affects your relationship with God. He encourages his people to reconcile not just in worship, but also with the next one about the fact uh, he repeats his repetition of encouragement saying that, hey, if you are being sued, handle it yourself. Go and expedite it. Don't, don't trust the judge. Don't trust the court. Don't trust, go and handle it and do it yourself. Make sure that you yourself, you yourself, has reconciled with your accuser lest it go worse for you. These are images that any Jew would be familiar with, but also he's making the point of saying it's not just what you do and don't do, but it's the intent. And the intent matters because it's not just about whether you act on it or not, but what the intent signifies in a larger sense about your relationship with each other and your relationship with God. There's a scholar who overviews this section and I really enjoy the way he puts it. He says that Jesus is contrasting two things. He's contrasting an ethic from above, a from above ethic, which is God said. Is that a valid ethic? Sure. But Jesus goes one step deeper. He contrasts the from above ethic to a from beyond ethic. Now, from beyond what? Remember last year we talked a lot about kingdom and eternal life. What is eternal life? What is the kingdom of God? I'm going to throw a word at you. I don't expect you to remember it or even know it, but it's an inaugurated eschatology. What does that mean? It means that what we are as a church, what we are as a kingdom, what we are, what we have in Jesus, is a symbol and a sign of what is yet to come. The future of utter and complete righteousness, reconciliation, God making everything right, is peeping out now. It's starting to come out now. There are bits and pieces of it now. It started here in the kingdom. It started here in His people. It started when Jesus, Jesus Himself, the Messiah, came from the ultimate end into our world to bring heaven to us. But it's not here completely yet. And we know that because we still deal with the issues that He's talking about. When I say from beyond ethic, He means from beyond the present Looking forward to the complete and utter restoration of creation that God will make one day, which is started here and begun here, but not here yet. What is the ethic here? Here, the from above ethic is law: don't kill someone. Good law. What's the beyond ethic? Bringing the future kingdom to where truly between people there be no need for anger reconciliation is intentional and on purpose and proactive. This is a pretty high standard already. Because how many times do you get angry in a week? And not just at someone, but how many times in traffic, on the internet, uh, in line somewhere, you see politicians or news and you want to go, you fool, you idiot. This is harder than we think. How many times do you actually seek Intentional reconciliation with someone who you think has someone against you. This is the standard that Jesus holds us to. But don't worry, it gets worse. Actually, it gets better. Matthew 5, 27-30 says, You have heard it said, You should not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that of your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. This also excuse me also is more self-explanatory than others in this passage. What is he saying? He's saying, it's good that you don't go around and commit adultery, which by definition is to be intimate, sleep with someone else's spouse. That's good. You shouldn't. But Jesus says, but, I tell you, the principle of the law is that even looking and lusting after a woman, and there's some definite definition of what that is. Igniting the fire about something in your own heart and mind, says one scholar about someone. You've already committed adultery with her in your heart. And Jesus proposes something radical. He says, whatever it takes, remove that temptation. Remove whatever it is which causes you to sin. Now, here's the thing. This has been interpreted throughout history that ladies need to cover up more so they don't tempt people. That's not what this is saying. The accountability here is on the looker. The accountability here is on the one who has lustful thoughts in their heart, whether they're man or woman. The accountability here is on the one who is looking, not the one who is being looked at. The accountability here is for the one that says, whatever it is that you need to do so you don't do that to them, regardless of their situation, do that. And he says something that's rather hyperbolic, possibly. But yet, if that's what it takes, The principle here is specifically about lust, which will impact the next thing. But the principle obviously here is obvious. What causes us to sin, possibly, that we are or are not willing to get rid of, that affects our relationship with others and then our relationship with God. What is it in our life which may be better that we cut off completely Rather than risk it infiltrating us and taking over beyond even us knowing it. There are intricacies here. We're not talking about the random thought. We're not talking about the the moment of of losing control and going, no, that's not what I want to be. This is obviously continued practice, but it's something we're thinking about not just in terms of lust and intimacy, but in all of life. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, redefining what it is, redefinition, and then, he says, what is more righteous? What is the more possible? Meaning, what puts you in more righter relationship with God? That bad English, but I did it on purpose. Not out of what you have done. This isn't about how much you can do or can't do. But this is about being aware of things that get in the way of your relationship with each other, and therefore with God. What does it take to be more in relationship with your spouse or those around you? What does it take to be more in better relationship with God? Jesus is saying, do that. What's the from above ethic? God said, don't act. But, Jesus says the from beyond ethic is control your temptations, whatever they be, by whatever means necessary. I could stop here and have it be a full sermon for me alone, let alone some of you. But he goes on. And he goes on by saying, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorce woman commits adultery. Lord help. I debated. This what I was telling Ryan earlier. This is the section of this sermon which gave me the most trouble because this section out of everyone for whatever reason out of all these is probably the most controversial and the hottest topic for multiple reasons I debated how much I needed to explain about it because we're going to address it in the Sermon on the Mount class we're going to address it when we get to Matthew 19 but in order to come to the conclusion that I want to impart on you there needs to be some explaining two things before I go into this one I don't mean to intentionally drop a bomb and then walk away but I might Number two, if you have any questions about anything that I talk about in this subject, there will be resources up here. I'm open for further discussion and study. I will point you the resources that I read. I'm open on this. Number three, I guess, never trust me just because I'm up here talking. Always do your own study and come to me with that. Having said that, let's delve into this a little bit. This comes from Deuteronomy 24 which is the Mosaic Law, in which Moses permitted divorces out of the hardness of Israelites' hearts. Now, why did he allow those divorces? Well, there's two reasons. Two reasons. One, without it, what would happen is that it was legal for men to marry multiple women, but it was not legal for women to marry multiple men. Therefore, unless a woman was officially and legally separated from her husband, if she ever remarried... Which was a good thing for a woman to do because it was a patriarchal society. There was no way for her to take care of herself. If she didn't, she would be committing adultery. Whereas her quote unquote husband had nothing to do with her. She is stuck. So, he permitted divorce in Deuteronomy 24 out of an act of mercy to women. That's the first thing we have to realize. It was permitted and legal, it was an act of mercy to actually God taking care of Israelite women who instead of being put away, sent away, were actually legally divorced and therefore able to marry again. That's right from Deuteronomy 24. The thing was, it mattered. as I said. this is what commit adultery means. A legal divorce, said Deuteronomy 24, legally annulled the marriage which then legally permitted remarriage. This is the whole point of it. An illegal or improper divorce, such as saying, get out of my house, did not annul the marriage. Therefore, did not allow that woman to legally remarry. Therefore, would cause her to commit adultery, and therefore, whoever married her commit adultery. We're tracking so far, yes? This came from the legal and legal divorce, as I said. So, where we are so far from this text is that Jesus is saying that divorces are permitted and legal in order that you may remarry according to two things. One, whatever sexual immorality means, which we'll get into in just a second, and two, according to the other causes for divorce in Scripture. Put that over here for a second. Let's delve into sexual immorality, just what you want to hear on Sunday morning. So, sexual immorality, the word for this is pornia is used in many other ways, not just in one sense. In the best sense, generally, means any sexual sin which breaks the marriage covenant. Any sexual sin which breaks the purity, breaks the honor, um, messes up the right relationship between man and woman. This is how it's used overall. There are other arguments for other things. The best argument for what this word means here is any sexual sin which breaks dishonors, gets in the way of the marriage covenant. Most often that's interpreted as infidelity, cheating. That's certainly one of them. But the thing is, I mentioned that there were other causes for divorce in scripture. Here's where it gets interesting. In Deuteronomy 21, Provisions are made for a slave woman, and if a slave woman went the logic of the time, how much more a free woman to legally divorce her husband if he withheld, or she withheld for that matter, food, water, shelter, or conjugal rights, or as I put it here, covenantal love. Also, later on in Scripture, after Jesus, Paul extends permission for divorce to when an unbeliever leaves which all total gives us six permissible reasons, biblical reasons for divorce. Why does this matter? Well, because at Jesus' time, they had interpreted Deuteronomy 24, two major rabbis had come up and said, here's two ways of thought. Either it's either infidelity, meaning cheating, or the other one said that there's a forty reason clause. And this becomes clear when you read Matthew 19. They asked Jesus, Is it true that the law permits a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Divorce by Jesus' time had become so easy and so rampant that some of the rabbinical writing at the time actually made fun of the fact that, yes, you can divorce your wife just by her burning your food. And you got the certificate of divorce and it's done for. Jesus actually restricts that interpretation by saying it's only for Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a tip of divorce, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual sin, break, along with the other reasons in Scripture that we're not talking about, if you do anything else besides that, then you commit adultery. That's not a legal divorce. Here's the resource list if you want to look at it, and I'll go through this real quickly. Divorce is a hot subject. But you have to realize that not only in Deuteronomy 24, is just the context of Matthew. Exodus 21 gives you that reason. It actually literally says in Scripture that God divorced Israel in Jeremiah 3.8 and verse 14 and Isaiah 51. In Ezekiel 16, God recounts His reasons for Israel's divorce. And they all have to do with imagery concerning food, shelter, uh, love, believe it or not, not necessarily how we think of that, but he puts it in there, food, uh, shelter, clothing. Read Ezekiel 16. All four of them are in there. The whole story of Hosea is about God's faithfulness to a cheating, infidelitous wife. The metaphor for God's faithfulness to Israel Malachi 2.16 is generally translated God hates divorce but the word for that actually translated God hates the sending or putting away which is not the word for legal divorce although God does not like that either. I'll leave this up for just a minute. If you want to take a picture or write notes down I know that some of you do. The whole point of this is this is the context in which we find this command passage teaching. This is not taught in my experience. As I said, I'll be available if you need more information on this. I'll send you my resources. Follow up with me. Here's the other thing, though. Although all that's true, that's not the point of this passage. (laughs) The point of this passage is not to Jesus to explain his theology and explain scripture and explain what is and isn't legal isn't permissible. The whole point of the passage is for him to say, look, you're treating a sacred covenant like dirt in the kingdom. Do not do that. Jesus is commending his followers to a covenant, which as Scott McKnight says, a rugged commitment to one another. It's the kind of commitment God had to His people. It's the kind of commitment He has to us. The kind of commitment we should have to Him, and the kind of commitment to each other. Jesus is actually restricting and making it harder for His people to divorce each other because He says that's not the way that covenant's supposed to work in My Kingdom. That's not the way that we should aspire to. That's not what we should be trying to do. That that's not the point of covenant. That's not the point of marriage. The point of marriage is a covenant. The point of marriage is to commit. The point of marriage is to be together. The point of marriage. To grow one another. Through one another. Through God working in your life. Jesus' whole point is to say, do not get divorced. To plead with His people that this is not God's way. Although, because the kingdom is now and not yet, we deal with the repercussions of people not being the people they ought to be and marriages not being the marriages they ought to be. doesn't mean that it's good just because it's permitted. All things are lawful. That's 1 Corinthians 8. Not all things are beneficial. Jesus' whole point is saying, in the kingdom, this is the way. Mandalorian reference for any of you. Matthew five thirty through thirty seven. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is by the throne of God, or by the earth, or for it is or for or for for it is His footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. And do not take an oath by your head that you cannot make one hair white or black. Let us let you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is deeply rooted in Jewish history. In fact, Deuteronomy says, when you make an oath, especially if you make it to God, make sure that you follow through appropriately. The thing is, Jesus is addressing this. The whole thing got kind of confuzzled because people would try to get around swearing to God by swearing something else like by the temple by Jerusalem um, by heaven the problem is twofold one you still invoke God by invoking the things that he made and two you're still swearing an oath that's what this section is talking about these things common things like people would swear by in order to make whatever they say to be that much more binding and that much more serious what does Jesus say? Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more from this comes from evil. Why should you have to say, okay, I didn't mean it then, but by Jerusalem I mean it now. This all has to do, once again, with relationship and transparency and reconciliation. The kingdom ethics from above ethic is keep your oath. From beyond ethics says oaths aren't needed because my people are people of their word. My people are people that say what they mean. My people are or ones that can be counted on, reliable on, and if they don't follow through, they own their mistakes, are vulnerable, and they're committed. This is the kind of kingdom people. This is what it means to be a Beatitudes type person. And we know that for those of us in relationships or friendships. What does it mean if you swear on something great but yet you don't follow through? Versus what about the people who if they say, hey, I'll be there at eight, and when they're not there at eight, you better send flowers. We notice those people, don't we? That's the way we should be. I know I'm moving fast. I'll bring this one together, I hope, at the end. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Ah, now we're in justice. Not just relationships. But now we're in justice of relationships. What are the things here? Deuteronomy says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus says, do not resist to one who is evil. Someone slaps you on the right cheek. What is the most ridiculous thing you could do to show you're a different person? I'm sure the guy slapping you would be like, huh? Indeed, when he says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. There was a law that said, if someone took you, legally could take part of your clothing and they could not take all of your clothing because you needed it to survive. Jesus says, don't even let them sue you. If they take it, go with the extra mile and give him what they didn't ask for and what you don't have to do. He's saying, in essence, give up your rights to what you have in order to maintain my version of justice. Same thing. If anyone will force you to go one mile, go with him two. We've all probably heard these images and these stories of how a Roman soldier could conscript someone to go one mile, but no more legally. Jesus is saying, Be generous and go one more, because that's the type of people that we ought to be. Not because you're compelled to, but because you should give the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who will borrow from you with no thought of reply. What's he talking about here? He's talking about generosity. He's also talking about non-resistance. Now, from this passage, we get things about the concept of pacifism. And I want to make a small little distinction here. This isn't, I put trope pacifism, meaning what we generally think of the, you know, random person thing of pacifism, which was, sit there, let anyone do anything to you that they want, and don't resist. That's not what Jesus is talking about, not by a long shot. What he's talking about here is active non-resistance in the spirit of generosity. How does this fit into justice? Well, the old law is all about retributive justice, meaning what is legal, what you have to do, what you must do, and also if something is done wrong to you, there must be something done to make it right. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? Jesus is talking about restorative justice. Restoring even through transgressions restoring even through compulsion restoring even through what is legal restoring even through yes not good things restoring a relationship possible between you and them between them and God and you and God Retributive justice making something right which was wrong versus restorative justice which is restoring the heart and intent of the relationships between people there's a big difference there and restorative justice is actually a majority of biblical justice, but that's beyond our purview today. And finally, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It actually doesn't say the second part anywhere in Scripture, so we think he got this from how it had been interpreted. Not just been interpreted, but also how it had been done. Meaning that you really, really, really love your neighbor to the extent that by default you really hate anyone who is not your neighbor. But I say to you, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Notice it doesn't say a reason that you have to love your enemies. It just says to do it. And notice the other action. We hear a lot about love your enemies, but notice the other action. Pray for them. What do we pray? We pray in the word of the Psalms that, Lord God, my enemies are there. Burn them! Burn <laughs> them! So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors who do the same. And If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles ooh, do the same. Jesus is saying, love your enemies because they're there, because they're human. Pray for them. Not just that you win or overcome them, but pray what? That you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. I think that's intentional by saying, who's also a son of your Father in heaven? The person you're praying for. And we think that because of the last verse. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, a lot of this is confuzzled right here as well. What does that mean? Contextually, I think it only applies to this section, and it means to love as perfectly as your Father does, which means you love who your Father loves. The question is, who does your Father in heaven not love? Who don't you? Who is your enemy? And let's not be coy and say, oh, no one's trying to, to kill me or no one's trying to really persecute me. We have enemies, meaning the people that we have evil towards in our hearts, whether they're on Facebook, or whether they're the person who cut you off in traffic, or maybe even people that you just don't get along with. Do you pray for them? Do you love them as God loves them? Jesus, once again, Love is your Father, actively loving all, enemies included. Once again, the from above says, Tolerate your enemies. Don't do any ill will towards them. The From Beyond Ethics says actively seek their godliness as well. Who is your enemy? Who is your racial enemy? Who is your homosexual enemy? Who is your Republican or Democrat enemy? Do you love them towards their godliness as well? That was a lot. Let us all breathe for a second. Mostly because I need to too. What's the point? Why choose these? Well, let's put them all up here. I think the point that Jesus is using here is to pick out not better or worse ones, but ones that were issues of the day, issues that Scripture directly addressed, that were being misinterpreted and misapplied in their society. Glad we don't have any of that today, other. Yeah, And to say, yes, this is what the law says, but I, as your king, say to you. So what are all these? What are all these? Are pictures, first and foremost, once again, of King Jesus himself. He who was not angry and murdered anyone, but yet did the exact opposite. He who remained pure. He who actually came to restore a divorced relationship rather than commit one. He who came And was trustworthy. He who restored justice. He who loved everyone who was his enemy, says Romans 5. Because of that also, this is a big picture of what the more gospel means. Once again, not that we should be more loving and more this, more that. But yet, we should go the extra mile. Not just to those around us and our enemies, but we ought to go the extra mile for Jesus because he came from heaven to go the extra mile for us. The more gospel says, what is the more righteous thing? And that is our goal. That is our job. That is who we are. But also, don't miss that this is the perfect image of the portrait of the Beatitude citizen. The Beatitudes, the person who takes those seriously or what turns someone from anger and murder into peace and someone seeking active reconciliation, or what turns someone who lusts and adulterers into someone who, pry, who, who pines for purity and intimacy in their relationships, someone who wants to take divorce and turn it into covenant, a rugged commitment with each other. Real quick on by the way, we need to stop treating those who are divorced worse than murderers in our congregations. And we need to love them as God loves them too. It's not worse. It is what it is. They need their church just as much as anyone, maybe even more. The Beatitudes are someone who turns someone who can only proclaim honesty for an oath into someone who creates, by their very words, everyday words, trust and is vulnerable when saying, no, I didn't do that, can own their actions and say, I will do this. Someone who can create trust by even when they don't follow through. That's the Beatitudes person. Someone who restores through the act of generosity as our Heavenly Father has done for us. And someone who takes from tolerating our enemies into truly loving everyone that comes across our path like God. The reason these are here is not just to give us moral teaching. The reason these are here is to truly expound and truly teach us what it means to be salt and light. What it means to be able to influence our world who has it so messed up. These are here to teach us that kingdom living is not just about doing this or that, but living like our King who was, indeed, the perfect example of a Beatitudes citizen, of a Messiah citizen, of the one who made all of this possible, and therefore our standard as well. We'll continue this line of thought throughout the Sermon on the Mount. This, I think, is the most intense of them, so you can breathe. We made it through. (laughs) But I pray that if nothing else, even if you didn't get everything that I threw at you, and I threw at you a lot, I pray that we consider what it is in our lives that we are content just to do instead of live. That we are content just saying, well, God said so, therefore, versus this is what it means for me to be an active part of Jesus' kingdom right now. And for us to consider what it means that if we're the only person anyone ever saw who is a kingdom citizen of Jesus. Would they see Jesus? Heavenly Father, a big task is in front of us, not just I mean the sermon, which I will admit I'm relieved is closing, as many others are, I'm sure. But the task is before us of what you expect of us, of what is only possible through being being nailed to the cross, and having you live in us, as Galatians says. I pray that this is encouraging, convicting, helpful for us to continually to take up our cross and live as you live in us. And I pray that if there's anyone here watching or anyone here who hasn't made that commitment to die in your death through baptism, be raised in newness of life, in order to be able to live and be this type of person, that you speak to them now and invite them into the doors. I do pray for the rest of us, though, that we take these things seriously. That we not only say, yeah, that sounds good, and oh, that sounds good, but truly take it to heart what it means to live like you live, starting now into tomorrow and the next day as kingdom citizens, as beatitude people, as people which continue to make your gospel and your kingdom possible through your spirit and power. Make us that people, God. Work in us, live in us, And bring us ever more closer to who You are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.